Luke 23, 39 through 43. I was a young, wet behind the ears, 26-year-old preacher boy, first year of pastoring a church, happened to be the little country church I grew up in, and I had my first full-blown ministry crisis. A man in our church, a man I'd known my whole life, who was in his mid-50s, which is getting younger and younger all the time, if you know what I mean, but he, he passed away suddenly one day. They just found him at his job. He had, he had just died suddenly. Uh, I, remember, I remember how I found out. It was, it was the 4th of July, actually, and I was, I was sitting with my wife and my parents and my grandparents outside my grandma's house. We were sitting in the shade of an oak tree. It was sundown. We were shelling peas, because that's what you do in the country when you're sitting around. You don't just sit. You work, right? So we're sitting there, and we're shelling peas, and all of a sudden, the phone rings inside the house. My mom gets up to run to get it, and she comes back out, and she's got this terrible look on her face. And she says, they found Doug dead. Nobody knows why. And we're sitting there absorbing that. And she looks at me and she says, you better go to the house. And I thought, why do I need to go to the house? What am I supposed to do? This man just died. And I don't know what to say about that. I his, his wife went to another church in town, a church that, frankly, uh, you know, their denomination and our denomination didn't really get along. You know, they, weren't, they didn't think we were going to heaven. We weren't real sure about them. And so I, I didn't know if I would even be welcome in that house. I'd met her a couple of times. She seemed nice. But besides that, even if I was welcomed, what would I say? What do you say to someone whose husband's just dropped dead at the age of 54 or 55? And so all the way there, driving to that house in the darkness and walking up to the front porch, I'm just praying and saying, Lord, can't somebody else go? But, but his wife, Betty, was extremely gracious. She was so glad I'd came and she, she just made me feel good. I hope I made her feel good at, at the end of my visit when, frankly, I didn't really have any words of wisdom. I was just there to say, you know, we're sorry. And she said, will you... Will you participate in the, in the funeral service? My, my minister is going to lead it, but will you take part? And I said, I'd be honored. Well, the day of the funeral, I showed up and most of the town was there. They, there were so many people that the chapel of the funeral home was full and they opened up all the side rooms where they usually, used, they usually used for viewings. They opened up all those side rooms and they piped the sound in there. And so it was by far, I mean, by magnitude of four or five, the largest crowd I'd ever spoken to. And I was terrified. I, was, I knew that a lot of the people in there sitting in that room didn't agree with me theologically. I mean, we both worship the same God and the same Jesus, but we agree, disagreed on other things, so they may not even want to hear from me. Um, I knew that I had chosen this very text, this story about the thief on the cross who Jesus spoke to before he died. And as I'm standing there waiting while the other minister is speaking, and he's doing a great job because he's a seasoned minister, he's done this before, and I'm sitting there second-guessing myself and thinking, why did I choose that text? Am I going to get up and read the story and people are going to be offended because I'm comparing Doug, a good man, an upstanding citizen, and I'm comparing him to a common thief. But it was too late, and I was too young and too dumb to change on the fly, so I just got up and went with what I had. And I read the Scripture that you have in front of you, starting with verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I spoke for just, just real briefly. I, I, I said, because God accepted this criminal into his family by grace, I know he's accepted Doug into his family because I know who Doug believed in. I know where his faith lay. And I know, therefore, where he is now. He's with Jesus. And we don't know a lot about that place, but we know it's, we know it's in the presence of Christ, and we know it's paradise, and, and we know it's better than this world. And so he's experiencing things now that he never could have experienced in this world. And I talked about how he's reunited with his mom and dad and other people that he's lost through the years, and he's even reunited with his friend Tommy who died just a month earlier, and they were close, and now they're together, and maybe Tommy's showing him around the place. And, and I said, you know, even better than that, Doug has believed in Jesus since he was a little boy, and he's never seen him, but now he's seen him. Now he sees him face to face, and now he hears his voice with his own ears, and now he knows him the way he's always been known. And I said, it, I closed by saying, I, I believe with all my heart that if Doug could be here in the flesh, he would say, y'all come to Jesus because I want you to be where I am someday. And when it was over, let me just let me just confess to you, when I said those words and I knew I had said everything I came to say, a huge feeling of relief swept over me. I was done. I had completed that task. I could go home and crash because my, anger and my anguish was over. And so I went around at the end of that and, and the, the other minister and I stood at the head of the casket as people came by and passed by his body for the last time and, and they came and greeted him and they greeted me. And, and I was overwhelmed by how many people told me that the words I spoke were meaningful. And his widow, Betty, was just so overwhelming in the, in the things she said and how much it meant to her. And there was a guy that was there who I'd gone to high school with, and he'd been the epitome of high school cool. I mean, the kind of guy that I, I don't know that he ever spoke to me in high school, but on that day, he comes up to me and with tears in his eyes just says, you said what we needed to hear. And even the other minister looked at me and he said, you know what? It really does say today you'll be with me in paradise. I never noticed that before. And a few days later, a man that went to my church, he, he came to me and he said, I was there at the funeral. He said, you chose a really good text because, you know, the, the church that his wife went to and the church, those, most of those people there, that church doesn't teach assurance of salvation. They just kind of leave it to chance. You, you believe in Jesus and you do, your, you do the good deeds and you follow Christ and you hope. But he said, you showed them that you can know for sure. And I said, well, <laughs> that wasn't even on my mind. That's not even why I chose that. That was obviously a God thing. And looking back on it, I know this. I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt that my message was not well delivered. Because back in those days, I was really bad about trying to say too much and talking way too fast. And some of you are saying, yeah, you still got that problem, Jeff. So it wasn't any expository mastery on my part that had that effect on all those people. It was, number one, obviously the Holy Spirit of God just chose to move at that moment. But number two, the people in that room were thinking about death. They were thinking about the end of life. And let's be honest, most of us in this room rarely do that. Especially those of you who are younger than me, and that's a significant portion of our crowd today in this service, you rarely think about death. Maybe, maybe when a loved one passes away, or when you hear that a loved one has gotten a devastating medical uh, diagnosis, or, or maybe when you hear about a natural disaster or a time like 9-11, a, a great national crisis when many lives are lost, you, you ponder then, wait, this life is short. But we tend to forget about that. So here's what I tell you. 
it is good for your soul to go to funerals. You may not enjoy funerals. You're not supposed to enjoy it. But it's good for you to be there. Take every opportunity when you know someone who's passed away, even if you don't know them well, to go to that service, number one, because it's a comfort to the people who are his family, his or her family, but secondly, because you need to be reminded this life is short. So my question to you right now is, do you know what to say? Because most people rarely think of death, but at certain moments, they're confronted with the idea of mortality. Do you know what to say if you're by the bedside of a loved one who's breathing their last breaths? You know they're only here for another day or two, maybe hours, and you're not sure of their eternal state. Do you know what to say in that moment? Do you know what to say when your friend loses his mom and then he says to you, man, I sure do want to see my mom again, but I don't, I'm not sure how to make that happen. Do you know what to say in that moment? Do you know what to say when there's a friend of yours who's middle-aged or older and he comes to you and says, I feel like I've wasted my life and soon I'm going to be dead and I, I've got, I have nothing to show for it. How do you counsel someone like that? Hear me, please. Don't pull out your cell phone and call the preacher. I mean, I'm glad to come. But God put you there. You. For a reason. That means that God thinks that you can do a better job than I can. Or Alan. Or Christian. Or Kathy. Or Robert. Or Nathan. You can do a better job in that particular situation than we can. So be the voice of Christ. You may say, well, I'm not qualified. Do I look qualified? All the, all the schooling and all the ordination you can muster in the world wouldn't make me or any other sinner qualified to lead somebody to salvation. What qualifies us is the God who lives in us. So what do you say? How do you get ready for these moments? These moments when people run smack into their mortality. This story shows us something. Think about this for a moment. The Physiologists tell us that crucifixion, one of the things that made it so painful was you literally couldn't breathe in that position as you're hanging by your arms. And so one of the things you'd have to do in order to draw breath, some of you have heard this before, is you'd have to push yourself up to release the strain on your arms and your lungs. And in order to push up, you had to push up against the only thing you had to push up against, which was that nail through your feet, which was intensely painful. Think about that for a moment. So in order to, that was just to take a breath. You had to draw an even bigger breath to speak. Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. Seven times He went through the agony of drawing a deep enough breath that He could form words. And this is one of those seven times. As He's dying, this man next to Him is dying, and He seizes an opportunity to bring one more soul into the kingdom. How did He do it? What did He give this man that everyone else needs? Two things. Remember this. Two things. When you are counseling, when you're ministering to or conversing with someone who is struggling with issues of mortality, they need grace and they need hope. They need to hear about God's grace and they need to hear about the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Very, very simple outline. So let's talk about those two. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. I've got a story of unmerited favor for you. When I was in college, I went to the University of Houston and got a degree. The degree was called Radio Television. My dad loved to tell people, um, I don't think he uses this joke anymore, but he loved to tell people for years, you know, we sent Jeff off to college and we, we got him a degree in radio television and he can't even fix that TV over there. Hilarious. 
I wanted to go into broadcasting. That's what I thought I was supposed to do before God told me differently. So I, I was learning. I wanted to be on TV. I wanted to be the guy with the camera on me. But you don't just study that. You study all aspects of television production. I remember one of the first classes I took, my second semester. It was a TV production class where we learned to operate the cameras, operate the lights, to uh, to even sit in the director's chair and and say, okay, camera two, ready? Okay, go camera two, and so forth, and and produce an actual TV show. And so in the middle of the semester, one of the things we had to learn was editing, video editing. Now, some of you know how to do that now. You can do it on your laptop. It wasn't quite so easy in the late 80s. U of H had this ancient little uh, editing suite, is what they called it, which was basically a walk-in closet with a couple of editing bays and TVs. And one day in the, in the midst of the semester, the, the professor took us out of our classroom and into that editing suite, and, and the 15 or 16 of us just crammed into that tiny room, and we watched him as he showed us how to edit something that's on one video cassette and put it on another video cassette in the order you want it. And then he said, okay, I want everybody to reserve a 30-minute slot the next week because you're going to come here and you're going to do an editing assignment, and this is for a major grade. This is going to count the same as a test, so be ready. So I scheduled my 30-minute slot, and I got ready. On that day, I went to the communication building. I found the editing suite. I walked in. There before me at the editing bay were two video cassettes. One was blank, and the other one had an old episode of Hawaii Five-0 on it. Not, not the new one but the old one, the one from the 70s. And it was an episode of Hawaii Five-0, but it was all out of order. So for those of you who are old enough to remember the old one, it started with Bookum Dano, okay? The end of the show was the beginning of this tape. And then there in the middle, you saw the, the beginning of the show. You saw the theme song, dun 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 dun, dun you know what I mean? And then, then you saw the murder, and then you saw several other things. And so your job was, you had to take that jumbled up episode, put it in order, and put it on the blank video cassette. That was your assignment. So, you know, I remembered what the professor had done. I, I started twisting knobs and pushing buttons, and that didn't work, so I twisted buttons and pushed knobs, and that didn't work, and I'm thinking, oh no, I honestly can't remember what the professor did. I don't, I mean, I might as well have been at the at the controls of a 747 for all the good it would do me. I, I knew nothing, and I started to sweat. 10 minutes had passed. I had 30 minutes to do the assignment. Then 15 minutes passed, and then the door opens, and in walks Dr. Robert Musburger. Dr. Musburger had for many years been a, a TV director and producer, and then he retired and became a professor, and now he was the dean of the School of Communications. He walks in, sits down next to me at the bay next to me, and begins putting together some video for his next class. And I'm thinking, this is wonderful. I'm bombing. I mean, I am crashing and burning. I am dying here. I am going to fail a class in my major, and the dean of the school is watching it happen. Sweat is pouring off of me. All of a sudden, he stops what he's doing. He leans over, and he says, hey, you need some help? And I said, oh no, Dr. Musburger, this is for a major grade. I couldn't accept your help. That wouldn't be right. I have to do the work myself. Yeah, right. That's what I said. <laughs> I did not say anything like that. I said, yeah, I, I really need some help. I can't remember how to do this. And he said, well, watch this. And he pushed a couple of buttons and he dialed a knob and then he pushed another button and all of a sudden what was on that tape appeared on this tape. And I said, thank you. And I got it done. And I made an A. And that's grace. Because 
I didn't deserve that A at all. I deserved a failing grade. But the one who knew how to pass the test took the test for me. You see, that's grace. And that's what Jesus did for this man. Dying on the cross next to him. You understand something about this man. The Bible calls him a thief, but that's not the whole story. We're not talking about a shoplifter. We're not talking about a petty criminal. He didn't just, you know, jack somebody's camel. All right. This was a bad guy. The Roman Empire, for all their cruelty, did not use crucifixion lightly. This was the worst punishment for the worst offenders. They made examples of people who were especially dangerous. Whoever this man was, and we don't know his name, he had lived an awful life up till now. Any good deed he had ever done was by far outweighed by the things he had stolen, by the throats he had slit, by the people he had hurt. And now he's dying, and he says, I deserve this. You deserve this. Guess what? So do we. So do we. We're really good, we human beings religious and irreligious alike, we're really good at self-righteousness. This feeling of, well, I'm not as bad as him in that one area, so I'm a better person. You know, I'm doing better than her in terms of these particular behaviors, so I'm, I'm good. But the Bible tells a different story. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the subject of that sentence? We're in grammar class right now. What's the, what's the subject? The little three-letter word. Three letter word starts with A. All. Who, who's included in all? Well, all of us. Yeah, that means, that means you. That means me. That means your sainted grandmother. That means the Pope. That means when they were still alive, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. That means everybody you can name, everyone who's ever lived except for Jesus Christ who knew no sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you may say, well, I'm not as bad as this thief. I've never stolen anything. I've never killed anybody. That doesn't matter because you're not measured by the standard of that thief. You're not by, measured by the standard of me. You're measured by God's standard and we fall short of His glory. If to save yourself, you've got to jump across the Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter if you can out-broad jump me, you're still going to die. The standard is the perfectly righteous Father. There's a scene near the end of the movie Unforgiven. So this old Western and, and Clint Eastwood is this, this old gunfighter who's tried to reform himself, but he's going back for one more, one more score. And there's a, a kid who admires him, the Schofield kid he calls himself, a, an aspiring gunfighter. And the Schofield kid has just killed somebody for the very first time, and now he's filled with remorse. And he's understanding that it's not what it was cracked up to be, that, that killing a man is, is a terrible thing, and it marks you forever. And he's crying, and they're standing underneath an oak tree, and, and he's crying there under that tree, and he says, trying to justify himself, he says, well, I guess he had it coming. And old Clint doesn't even look at him. He looks off in the distance and he says, we all got it coming, kid. We all got it coming. Every single one of us. But Jesus aced the test that we had failed. And He says, you want to switch grades? You need a little help? Because I got what you need right here. I've done it. I've taken the test. You need a little help? Come to Me. Jesus looked at this man and he didn't care about what he'd done in the past. 
He didn't even care that this man would never do one blessed thing for the kingdom of God. He'd never get baptized. He'd never join a church. He'd never preach the gospel. He'd never help hurting people. He'd never give a donation. He was just a lousy criminal who had a change of heart at the last moment. And Jesus still looked at him and said, that's okay. You're going to be with me today. Today. Philip Yancey says something amazing. He says, do you know that the thief on the cross is the only person in the entire Bible who receives a direct promise from God of eternal life? That's not true of Moses. That's not true of Mary Magdalene. That's not true of Peter or Paul. I mean, we believe those people are there because of what the Scriptures tell us about them, but only this man hears from Jesus Himself, you're going to be in heaven. Think about that. Think about the wideness of God's grace. The amazingness, if that's a word, and it is now. The amazing nature of the grace of God. Your friends need to hear that. Everyone needs to hear that. And when they're struggling with their mortality, they're more likely to hear that from you than ever before. Because they're probably of the opinion, even if they grew up in church, that it's about earning points with God. And that's a scary proposition, isn't it? To think, well, maybe, maybe I've done enough good deeds. Maybe I was in church often enough. Maybe, maybe I've avoided the really, really bad sins long enough. Think about the relief you can give people when you say it's not about that. Because if it was about that, we'd all be lost. It's a gift that He chooses to give you. They need to hear about grace. And they also need to hear about hope. When they're facing the end of life, when they're dealing with eternal issues, they need to know there's something beyond this world. This world is not the best it's ever going to be. There is something greater coming. I had a friend, uh, a lady in her 80s at the time, and, and she was a, a true follower of Christ. And she once told me, she said, you know, you preachers need to preach more often about heaven. She said, you don't realize how important it is. She said, the older I get, the more I need to hear about what comes next. And I've never forgotten that. Starting next Sunday... We're going to start a series on heaven that lasts 10 weeks. It lasts from next Sunday all the way to the Sunday before Thanksgiving. I really hope you'll make time to be here each Sunday. And I hope you'll invite people to come. There are friends of yours, some of them religious, some of them never been to church before, who are curious about eternal life. What happens after this life? They will be interested to hear what the Bible actually says. And some of you are going to be surprised at what the Bible says about heaven. Jesus gave this man assurance. He, he did two things for this man, and, and that's what this man needed to have hope. And one is he gave assurance. And that's what we need to do. We need to give people around us assurance of salvation, that they can know they're headed in the right direction. Tell them how. They need answers. And you have them if you're a follower of Christ. Jesus said to the man, you will be with me today. He didn't say, I'm hoping you're going to be there. He's not saying, you know, you've got a good shot. I'll put in a good word with the big man. I think you'll be okay. He doesn't say any of that. He says, you will be. Today, you will be with me. That's assurance. And you may say, well, he's, he's Jesus and I'm not. And I don't know who's saved and who's lost. You're absolutely right. And neither do I. And we as Christians 
can be fools sometimes and sit around debating on whether this person's saved or that person's saved because, well, I saw him committing this sin and I heard he believes this false doctrine so he can't really be. That's not our job. That's above our pay grade. Only God gets to decide. But what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is when you're talking to someone who's struggling, who needs hope, and you pray and you let the Holy Spirit lead you and you say, listen, Here's all it is. If you repent of your sins and you ask Jesus to save your soul, that's all it takes. You just told me you've done those things and I believe your word, so based on that, I know I'm going to see you again. And every one of you can make that statement if you love somebody enough to listen to them, to hear their heart, to tell them the truth. They need assurance. They don't need maybe. They need to know how to get where they want to go. They also need to know what it's like there. See, that's something else Jesus did. He described the place where this man was going. And we need to do that as well. And I know, I know you're going to be more equipped if you come over the next 10 weeks. You're going to hear things about heaven that are going to help you envision what is to come. That's going to be helpful. But even if all you knew was this, this would be enough. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's an interesting word because it's not a Hebrew word. And it's not a Greek word. It's a word that's borrowed from the Persian language. Some of you who know Old Testament history really well, you know that the Jews spent some time in exile in the Persian Empire before they were released under Cyrus the Great, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt Jerusalem. While they were in Persia, they adopted some of the language of the Persians. One of the terms they learned was this word paradise. The Persian word paradise referred to the private gardens that Persian nobility would have in their homes. So if you were a nobleman or noblewoman in Persia, you would be wealthy enough that you could build this lavish garden where you and your family could gather and, and eat together or relax, and you would wall it off so the peasants couldn't get in and disturb your, your time of, of recreation. That was called paradise. That's the term Jesus uses here. In fact, that's the term when the rabbis, a couple of centuries before Jesus' day, when they translated the Old Testament, the Torah, from, from Hebrew to Greek, we call it the Septuagint, they chose that word, that Persian word, paradise, to describe the Garden of Eden. And that's the word Jesus calls upon right now. And so even if you don't know anything else about heaven, you're able to say, I know that you'll be with Jesus. And I know it's a place so wonderful, he called it paradise. He said to this thief, yeah, yeah, it's walled off. Not everybody can get in, but I'll get you in. I know the owner, and I can get you through those gates in paradise. You know, the letters of Paul and all through the Scripture, especially Paul's letters, are saturated with hope. All through the Scriptures, this man who... Well, he suffered more than any ten of us put together. From the day he accepted Christ to the day he died at the acts of Nero, the emperor of Rome, he suffered more trials and tribulations than any ten of us put together. And yet, he constantly looked forward. He constantly knew, life is getting better. I have something to look forward to. Life is leading to somewhere great. And one of the things he told us in Colossians 3, he said, fix your eyes on things above. Set your mind on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. God wants us to think about the world to come. He wants us to daydream about it. He wants us to envision it. He wants us to get excited about it. And we need to be able to tell others about it too. So some years later, after I had preached that funeral 
at my home church. Carrie and I had moved, and we were living in, in the Houston area, and I was pastoring a church down on the south side. And a man in that church called me one day, and he said, I've got this friend who's in the hospital, um, and she's not in good shape. I want you to go visit her. Now, the problem with this was, I was down on the south side. She was up here at a, at a hospital in Conroe or, or the Woodlands. I can't remember which, but it was, it was a long drive. And, you, and you, he calls me in the middle of the day. This wasn't like I could wake up early in the morning and go. It was middle of the day when there's traffic. And it was going to take me half the day to get up here and visit this woman, and half the day to get my way back. And I know y'all think preachers only work on Sundays, but believe it or not, there was a lot going on that I was going to have to set aside to make this hospital visit. But I did it because he was persistent and I couldn't tell him no. And in the end, I was glad I did because when I got there, I found out this woman had been diagnosed with cancer um, and there was no cure for what she had. I found out that she'd grown up in church but never really accepted Christ and she didn't know what to do. And so I was able to tell her very simply, here's how you pray, here's how you ask Jesus to be your Savior. And she did. And so it was worth it. Years passed and God called me to a different church. And after I'd been there several years, this, that same friend called me and said, hey, remember that friend of mine that you visited in the hospital? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, she's dying now. She's just got a few days left, if that. And um, she's worried because she never got baptized. And I said, well, you know, baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Baptism's like a wedding ring. If I never wore a wedding ring, I'd still be married. I just wear the ring because I want people to know I'm married. In the same way, baptism is just a symbol that Christ has saved us. That water doesn't rescue you. Jesus' blood does that. And he says, well, thanks for the Bible lesson, but she doesn't know that. And I said, well, can't you tell her? He said, I've tried, but she feels like she needs to be baptized. She's worried that if she dies without being baptized, she hasn't been obedient to the Lord and she doesn't want to stand before Him with that against her. And I said, okay, I, I, does she, can we bring her to church? She said, no, 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 she is, she is bed bound. She's stuck. She, she can't get out of bed. And I, I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, I don't know. You're a preacher. Figure it out. I said, yeah, I'm a preacher, but I'm not a Methodist preacher, okay? I... I he says, hey, this is, yeah, I ju I'm just telling you what she told me. Now, they lived at this point outside of the Houston area. This was an all-day thing for me. But I couldn't say no. I didn't know what to do. I drove out there, got there about mid-morning. It was a hazy day. The house was right next to a lake. You could see the water from the living room where she lay in a hospital bed. Her family was gathered around, extended family, husband, Kids, grandkids, nephews and nieces, all weeping. When I walked in, they parted and just let me stand next to her. My friend had told me none of her family are believers in Christ. None of them go to church. She's the only one who's accepted Jesus. But they seemed glad that I was there. And I, I didn't know what else to do. I, I'd been pondering, what, what can I say to someone in this situation? So I read her two scriptures. I read Romans 10.9. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And I said, do you declare that Jesus is Lord of your life? She said, yes. And I said, do you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? She said, I sure do. I said, then you're saved. And 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that to be absent from the body for a believer in Jesus is to be present with the Lord. So I take that to mean that now that you believe in Him, and you've told me this, I, I believe and trust that the moment you close your eyes for the last time, you're going to open them in His presence. The last breath you take in this world, you're going to breathe heavenly air the next second. 
And then I said, you know, you don't have to be baptized for that to be true. But I know that you want to be baptized and I want to honor that. And I don't know any other way to do it but this. And I had a little glass of water and I had a dish towel and I just poured a little water on her forehead and I wiped it off. And I said, as best we can do right now in the state you're in, that's a symbol of the fact that your soul is clean in the presence of Christ. Now, you may call me a Methodist if you want. I've been called way worse. But I think that woman right then didn't need a debate about what's the proper way to baptize. She needed assurance. She needed grace. She needed hope. And that's the best I could do at the moment. And all I know is someday I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be judged. I'm going to give an accounting for my life. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if He didn't say to me, you know, the two most important things you ever did were preaching that funeral and sharing with all those people that you can know you can be saved and standing by the bedside of that woman in front of her non-Christian family and telling them how to come into the family of God. And here's the thing. You can do those things too. You may never preach a funeral. You may never have to be forced to baptize someone who's dying, but you can give people grace and you can give people hope. You can be there for them. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. You don't need to pull out your cell phone and call the preacher. You don't need to pull out your phone and and call a minister. You are there for a reason. When that person is dying next to you, when that loved one uh, has gotten a bad diagnosis from the doctor and, and doesn't know what to do, when that friend is grieving the loss of someone important to them, when that person is, is puzzled by the death and destruction in this world and just is shattered by how short and brief and fragile life is, you can speak words of grace and hope into their lives. But you have to tell God you're willing. And He'll give you the equipping you need.